I think about climate work right now and I think, God, you know, the only people I can really imagine like getting this done with is the group of jumpers that I worked with because there was a lot of just working class mentality. There wasn't like a lot of dialogue. There wasn't people making graphs and charts and things. It was like, there's a job, let's get it done. Welcome to the Stories for Action podcast, where we speak with folks taking bold actions for a thriving planet. Our aim is to bridge divides and provide calls to action to help you find your role for positive impact. We're here in Montana in the middle of wildfire season as fires are burning across the Western US. Today we're speaking with Jessie Thomas who battled wildfires as a smoke jumper. She is currently a climate change advocate, a mother, and runs her business Sustainable Wellness, helping people to adopt nutrition and wellness plans for human and environmental sustainability. We catch up with her as she shares how she got into the profession of jumping out of airplanes to fight wildfires. Really, I was like 18 or 19 and and I had a friend who was working for the Forest Service who said, you would love this job. It's it's trail crew. So I had a number two pencil and I filled out my little bubble form and sent it into the district that I wanted to go to, which was in the Sawtooths in Idaho. And I ended up six months later getting a phone call from the fire crew and they said, do you want a job? working fire. And I actually didn't really know anything about it or want to do that. I wanted to do trail crew because I wanted to be in the wilderness, but I, it was the only job that offer that I had. So I was like, well, sure I'll do it. And I showed up and, you know, did the whole first year in the training thing. And I went on some fires and was really learned a lot and worked with people that I fell in love with. And I got to be in the woods and I got to use my body and be physical. And for me, that checked all the boxes that I needed to be checked. I ended up sticking with it. And then I ended up filling in and getting hired on a hotshot crew. And I saw smoke jumpers and they just looked like the coolest group. Like they just looked like they had so many things figured out. And I was like, God, that's just, that's what I want to do. I didn't even see them jump out of the airplane. I knew nothing of what the actual part of that was, but I just knew that that was the group of people I wanted to be with. And my path from there was just continuing to work on hotshot crews and get really solid fire experience and a lot of time on the ground, witnessing fire behavior and tactical fire fighting and, and just things like that. And so I just wanted to be solid there because I think whether I was aware of it or not, I just inherently knew that females, the cards were stacked against females. Like you had to really be solid in those things in order to be respected. And I'm five one. So I'm a very small female. I just knew that like, that, but there was also parts of it that just fit with my personality. You know, I'm very like uh, gregarious. I'm very uh, high energy. And so um, it just worked for me. And can you paint that picture for us, for those of us who just see smoke jumping as superhero work? What does that job of a smoke jumper entail? Yeah, what fire is like, I mean, what smoke jumping is like is essentially, you know, you go to remote areas where you cannot drive a car and you jump in because that's the most, you, you know, you parachute in because that's the most efficient way to get a fire out. And in the 50s, that was a huge, there was a huge campaign that came through and the timber industry was a big part of it about suppressing all fire because, you know, they didn't want their logging units to get burnt up. So smoke jump became, became the vehicle to help support that mission that the logging industry was really pushing for. Um, and then land management practices really didn't evolve much. Um, they still managed the landscape that way, um, even though it, fire is a very integral part of 
um, our landscape in the West um, through suppression tactics. It's really made it more of a problem that we have these bigger fires because they're so, like when fire goes through, it takes out the smaller vegetation and makes the fires, the, the landscape more resilient to fire over time. But when you suppress it, those smaller plants and trees grow up um, and they kind of crowd out each other and all those bigger trees don't grow. So there's just more competition in the forest. And because things are so tightly spaced, when a fire does establish and it does start burning, it just burns so intensely and hot. And, you know, we've seen so much crazy fire behavior in the last 20 and 30 years. It's just increasingly be becoming more that way. And some of it is because of climate change, but then some of it is also because of land management practices that kind of um, are very intertwined. But yeah, smoke jumping. So you jump in, you, you know, you have gear that's dropped to you from the airplane as well. And you get your suit off, you know, you're wearing this huge suit that's designed to protect you against trees and rocks and things because you truly are parachuting into a remote area. Um, you get your gear, you go fight the fire. Sometimes you fight it for 24 hours and go and like lay down on the ground for a little bit and you get up and you keep working and um, it's just super wild and fun. Such a fun job and such a great group of people to work with. I mean, I think, I think about climate work right now and I think, God, you know, the only people I can really imagine like getting this done with is the group of jumpers that I worked with because there was a lot of just like working class mentality. There wasn't like a lot of dialogue. There wasn't people making graphs and charts and things. It was like, there's a job let's get it done. And it was like everybody would grab a certain aspect of that job, a task involved in that job, and, and they would go to it. And it would just be absolute chaos for, for a while. And, but everybody knew what they were doing. And so then at the end of all that chaos, you would stop and look and you're like, okay, hey, we just put the fire out. That's awesome. You know, so it was really a cool, motivated group of people to work with who were incredibly fun and smart and capable. And can you just further paint that picture of, I mean, the job of being a wildland firefighter is probably one of the most physically demanding professions out there. You know, you're not only in these wild spaces, it's not like you're hiking up a trail, you know, you're... you're <laughs> you get really familiar with scrambling around in different places. There is no trail, you know, you're just, I mean, there are days and days and days and weeks where I was never on a flat piece of ground. And there were times where when I went to sleep or when we, it was time to sleep, you know, you just, you had to dig out a flat spot for yourself. You, and you're, you're not just, you know, you're hiking around on uneven ground. You're out there kind of in the middle of nowhere, um, scrambling around, but you're also, you're loaded down with heavy gear. I mean, you're not like, you're, you're wearing like your Nomex pants and your shirt and your boots and stuff like that, but your pack, it can be heavy. I mean, you have it on all the time or you have a, you know, a, a chainsaw over your shoulder and you're packing around a, you know, a 35 pound chainsaw in addition to your pack and gas and all these, you know, extra water, all these things um, that just require so much physical strength, really, truly. And not just physically demanding for that work, right? It's that high intensity, mentally demanding, quick decision making that's required. Can you share any specific moments of that coming into play? There were there was a fire I jumped in California with a group of jumpers and we got there and the fire was literally blowing up. There was, it was sagebrush that was 12 feet tall. There was no getting in there and doing anything. And 
we showed up and there were several hotshot crews there and they were like, we're going in. And I said, we are not going in. <laughs> and that was different than what they had thought they were going to accomplish, but it wasn't very long after that, that um, all the resources off that fire got pulled and we all had to go back to a certain area because it wasn't safe because there was nothing that we could do there. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was mostly like, I think the most unsafe things in terms of fire um, behavior was, was different opinions and differing opinions about how to accomplish the job. And some people I think felt like there was a safe way to take on a risky situation. And I was always more towards um, what's, what's at stake if we don't, you know, can we catch this fire on the next ridge or can we catch it at the drainage or, you know, what's the downsides of not getting in there. Um, so I was always more cautious. And I think as a female, um, you know, I, or any female really had to speak up for yourself. But I think that was the good part about having all that fire experience before jumping is that I had enough experience to speak up confidently and not really worry about whether I was saying something dumb or not, um, because I felt like I knew what I was doing. But still a superhero, like I said. No, <laughs> no, actually not. And then I had children and then I really learned what a superhero is. Sure, yep. And it's, it's not a smoke jumper. Amen. No offense to any smokers out there, but no, absolutely. And what was that transition like becoming a mother as a smoke jumper? Before I had quit smoke jumping, I knew I wanted to have children when I was a smoke jumper. And so I, I started working on a daycare because in my mind at the time, before I was even pregnant, I was like, well, I'm, you know, I'm having a baby, not a lobotomy. So obviously I'm going to want to come back to this career that I have, um, this career path that I have completely forged and I can't imagine doing anything different. Um, so I worked on a daycare that was at the Missoula Smoke Jumper base and is still there and still successful and still operating. Um, and it was designed for retention of female firefighters. But what I didn't know at the time was that leaving your child is the worst feeling in the world for me. Um, leaving my kids for two weeks at a time when they were little just absolutely seemed wrong. But at the time I had no clue yeah, no, absolutely. I'm sure this will be me over the next couple of years. So I appreciate hearing it's hard, it. <laughs> it's hard. To, it's really hard to figure out. You know, I'm I'm still trying to figure it out. But it is true. I mean, we're women with brains and something to contribute to the world, and so we should get to do both. I don't know why it would be that we couldn't. I know for me that there's a big there's a big rub between my husband and I when it's not equal, and then I'm the one that's stuck, not getting to like put my thoughts and opinions and put my work forward. But I do think that those voices and those perspectives of mothers is incredibly valuable, especially right now. Um, the world needs mothers' voices out there in all of this. And as a mother, living in an area where wildfire has a season and really affects um, your life and your lifestyle, as well as the health of your children, what does that look like when wildfire season comes around? You know, it's not just affecting these wild mountainous areas, but also the towns, cities, and um, communities that are in these regions and the health of the people who live in these areas. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it's really important to acknowledge that living in a city, living in a town, oftentimes puts you at more risk for air pollution. So, you know, here in Missoula, we're a good example of that because we've got the confluence of three rivers coming together and that confluence creates kind of natural air channels to the kind of pool the smoke up. We've kind of got this nice bowl that we're living in. 
And there are lots of places in the West where that's the same kind of example that they're also living with. Um, but, you know, we've got lots of asthma, we've got lots of people with underlying health conditions, heart conditions, all of that is affected by, by wildfire smoke. And so it is truly uh, challenging for the body to handle that. It is not, we aren't meant to. We're mammals in the environment. So when mammals are surrounded by smoke, they leave, they run, they get out of there, they don't stay, but we've, we're domesticated and we stay and we sit there and we breathe the smoke. So it's really challenging. And over a long period of time, chronic smoke inhalation, uh, gosh, it just you know contributes to so many health problems. And if you look at Seeley Lake, in 2017, where that community was just stuck in the smoke. It's a very, you know, working class community where they didn't have a lot of options to leave and they were really just stuck in their houses, stuck in smoke. There have been some long-term health ramifications uh, with that community. And that is just one example that with climate change, tracking the way that it is, we are just gonna see that more and more and more. 2017 we were in smoke for weeks and it wasn't just like a little bit of haze it was like hanging your head over a campfire for days on end and with no with no change in sight but it was that way for weeks i'd say eight weeks we were living like that um i think over the last couple decades there has been a lot of i guess just wild fluctuations in the in the weather so we're seeing huge plummets in in the temperature and then we're seeing like you know equally opposite um, increases in the temperature and all that influences fire behavior it all influences the the vegetation and um, how receptive it is to fire um, we're seeing fires get huge really really quick overnight and then throwing tons of smoke into the air so then i think yeah we, we have to do something we have to get we have to get people aware of these issues. So even if you're not affected by it directly, your neighbors are, you know, people living out here are, or, or people in other countries too. I mean, water lines rising, um, you know, we are seeing globally the temperature increasing and it's hard on a day like today where we've seen rain for the first time and I don't know how long the temperatures are dropped off. We tend to forget, you know, we're like, oh, you know, check it out, just check it off the, the list of things to care about. Right. No, I've been thinking about that a lot lately. And how do we maintain that sense of urgency for when it's not actively wildfire season and, you know, it leaves the forefront of the conversation, um, but also how that compares to having that compassion of those who are living in highly polluted areas or places where sea levels are rising or, you know, places that that's their year round. Like it's not yeah. even the season or... You know, and for a lot of people, it's hard to like, oh, if it doesn't affect me, why do I need to take urgent action in it? That we need to always be thinking that all of these things are urgent and putting yourself in that, whether it's putting yourself in the headspace of what it's like in the middle of wildfire season to be your driver or to have the compassion of what it's like to be next to a refinery and the, the pollution is being deregulated or the sea levels are rising, you know, where that is their year round, you know, that's where their, their kids are sleeping and where they're raising their children. You know, how do we maintain that compassion and put ourselves in those positions and let that guide us to always show the urgency in how we show up and speaking out 
against what we see is wrong, and even when it doesn't directly affect us. You know, how do we communally show up to work for an environment that benefits everybody? And what are ways that we can show up? And for moms specifically, for yourself as a working mother who has incorporated climate advocacy and environmental advocacy into your professional and personal life, what advice do you have for other working moms or those who have a very stretched bandwidth who feel like they don't have the time or the resources to become involved in these actions? I think for me, I don't think that there's anybody in the world maybe young people, but there's nobody in the world that has as much of an investment in the future as moms do. You know, if you were looking at like all the strain and the effort that we do because we love our children um, and trying to make things good for them, we can't do that without looking at the environmental aspects and and the climate change aspects. Um, It's impossible. I think that it's important for working moms to acknowledge the fact that it is true, you are incredibly busy and the cards are stacked against you in so many ways. And so how to integrate something, and I'm saying integrate it because it is not a matter of stacking one more thing on top of a list of things to do. Um, it's more it's more like recognizing your power as one, a purchaser. So lots of times moms are the ones that are out doing the shopping for the family. And so in, if we can think about ways, that's my dog barking, If we can think about ways to be more effective and aware consumers, uh, we're going to have a huge impact on climate change. Um, If we can, instead of going to Costco and buying those Costco greens that they sell in a plastic container that can't be recycled anywhere in the world and is just then taken over to, you know, Malaysia and stored in a warehouse or dropped in the ocean, Um, maybe we can look to the local farmers and say, hey, you know, like stock up on, stock up on your kale right now and freeze it over the winter. And then that way you're getting your greens and you're getting all those phytonutrients, but then you're also not contributing to climate change. The other thing we can do is connect with our kids on it and talk with our kids about climate change and about marketing food towards our children or, you know, like I have to set limits with my kids. We all do. And so sometimes the limits that I set are about um, taking care of our environment and and just putting that in priority and their in perspective of like, this is a decision that I'm making um, because it's going to affect your future. And um, I think the more that people can care about it, the, the better off we all are, but really just talking with them um, and not being stressed out about it, not being trying to be a perfect about it, but just breaking open that dialogue and including them in, in, in all of that stuff. Um, any chance that you can strike a match in your head and make it organic to you and make it, make it your own um, in terms of what you say and how you address your children, um, the better off you are because you're providing an educational opportunity. You're providing a learning opportunity for your kids to understand, you know, why we're not going to buy the plastic, this and that, and the other thing. Um, and also giving them those opportunities to fall in love with nature. Those are critical to one, keeping us out of a place of hopelessness about the environment, because when we lose track of why we're fighting for the climate, uh, we kind of get into bad places and show up, show up to the table, the climate change table with maybe not such good, you know, energy or thoughts. But if we can 
if we can remember why we're doing what we're doing, if we can take our kids out into nature, if we can keep that connection and that love with the places that we're fighting for and show, share that with our kids, um, that's huge. It's very important. And I think that women have to recognize that even if you feel like you can't turn your life upside down to become an activist, that your role as a mother is incredibly important in shaping society. And just because we've been conditioned to believe that being a mother is trivial, unchallenging, easy, not, you know, we're all supposed to be like men and engage with work like men, like we don't have children and all this stuff. What we do as mothers changes the world. And so I just want people to remember that. I think that that's just so key, so key in keeping us out of our discouragement. Yeah, no, it is such a powerful role that that plays and incorporating it is key, right? So that it becomes a part of our process, our professional lives, our personal lives, our political lives. And what are ways that, that you have made sure to integrate it into different components of your work and your life? Yeah, I mean, I just, I feel like any chance that I have to give people more information about um, climate change, the better. And, and not necessarily talking to people who maybe see things the same way that I do, um, but talking to the people who feel like they don't have the time or they don't have a spot um, at the table or that their voice wouldn't even matter. Um, and I especially love working with young people in this way because they really want to get involved. They're really excited and passionate about it. And of course they are because this is their future that we're talking about. Like they, their voice in this is incredibly important. And I think that, gosh, I mean, I just am, I'm just so inspired by young people. I think they're so brilliant and, and so capable. And it's so time for us adults to stop centering ourselves in all of this and really move over and really listen to what they have to say yeah. and what they offer because god even my eight-year-old blows my doors off i'm like oh my gosh i would have never have thought that and i just love the fresh thinking that young people have and the ways that she hasn't been bogged down and that all young people haven't been bogged down by mm -hmm. all the things that adults get bogged down with yeah and in amplifying the voices that need to be brought to the forefront right now, you know, something that keeps resonating to me is not just providing a seat for everyone at the table. You know, it's about breaking down that table and building a brand new one and looking at entirely new approaches to addressing issues and following other forms of leadership and other forms of approaches that may feel uncomfortable if we want to start really doing this and, and being more powerful in, in the things that we care about, we really need to try to incorporate as many voices as we can. And I think another thing that's really important here is that we're all conditioned to look towards white people and the white males for leadership. And that that's the model of leadership that looks the most productive and safe and um, effective but if we look towards native women, if we look towards um, by POC women for leadership, their leadership styles are going to be different. But if we learn how to and strive towards um, getting behind that leadership and those voices that have been ignored, we're going to be way more effective and powerful over the long haul. We are missing the voices of the people who are being most impacted 
by climate change, by the health crisis, by, um, you know, all these number of things that have risen to the surface because of, because of COVID. And so um, we've always been missing those voices. It's not a new thing. Um, and I think that, that, you know, if we want to talk about open spaces, well, I don't necessarily want to hear from a white guy. I want to talk to a native woman. Um, and the reason for that is because that group of people knows what it's like to have spaces that they love that are a part of who they are taken from them. They know that. Um, they know that firsthand. And we know it's wrong when that happens. We can experience that on our level. Like if you look at a group of athletes who are out trying to preserve a certain part of Missoula. Well, that's really important. And I think that that's great work to do, but we have to acknowledge that this is not, this is land to save, but it's not our land to save. And so if we want to really do this well and do it right, we have to seek out the voices who've been through this through and through, um, who are still there, still care, still, still very much integrated into the landscape. Um, if we want to really solve these problems, we need the working class and the poor people. Uh, we need those voices central. We need those people leading these, um, these causes because they're, they're the ones that are affected by it, but they're also the ones that are least likely to um, look at themselves as being a person at the table. They're the ones with the least amount of time and the least amount of resources to get there. So how do we facilitate making that different and taking the middle class component out of all these organizations that are pushing for these things that we know need to happen. It's just, it's time. It's so long. It's so overdue. Right. And like you said, it's, it's essential. <laughs> it's not just like, Oh, it'd be nice if we <laughs> change. No, it's not just like a nice thing to do in order to create, to hit some like target equality agenda that you have. It's like, right. no dude, the, this is about like functioning better, being better, doing better because we aren't just listening to one type of voice. Mm -hmm. On that note of climate action and the climate conversation, um, there's a lot of divides that come up. And one of them is in the world of wildfires. And as someone who has firsthand experience with forest management, wildfires, and then also climate advocacy, can you describe what that divide is between different groups in the conversation on wildfires and climate change and land management and how you see groups moving forward in a good way? Mm -hmm. You know, I think what the big rub or the big place where we get stuck in moving forward, I think that we can, all people can agree on certain things. We don't move places we stay further divided when we don't listen to each other, when we stop respecting each other as human beings. And, um, and I think that collectively we just don't have a good tool set um, to, to listen to each other. We just, we don't listen. We oftentimes think of what we're going to say in response. You know, I mean, it's just really basic kind of basic stuff, but we just don't have the skill sets for it. I really think that we have to stop and listen to the people who we don't agree with and try to figure out where they're coming from. We stop recognizing each other as people and we just, and it's especially easy to do when we're scrolling through Facebook and we're looking at this article that's like, this group of people did that and this group of people did that. Well, in all those groups of people are actual human people <laughs> and, 
and they're probably not that different than me or you. And so if we can kind of, if we can really look for the places where we connect on issues and we can talk to each other about them, um, what can we agree on? I think one of the places where I've been really excited about and encouraged about is this growing awareness of the way industry has influenced um, policies and just those gross relationships in there, I think that we can all agree, no matter what side of the aisle you're on, that's not okay. And um, what can we do to combat that? Those things are gonna, those, those meshings of private industry and policy are gonna always um, get us in trouble and only benefit a very small portion of us. And so how do we get together and fight that? Those industries don't care about the environment. They don't care about human health. Um, they just care about getting wealthier. And uh, we all know that's wrong. So we can start from there, you know? <laughs> it doesn't have to be a perfect thing, but I think just recognizing that we are truly all in this together and we are only going to get out of this together. There is no group of people um, that's gonna be successful here without the other. It's kind of like the wholeness and the intactness of the ecosystem. It's too easy to fall into that kind of societal, you know, immediate gut reaction that we're all conditioned to do is to blame and point the finger and be angry and, um, and get on the soapbox and be mad at the other person. And I mean, if you look at the number of Protestant churches out there, there's like a billion of them. And why is that? That is because there's just no way, there's no example of how to move forward together and not split apart and not divide up because we don't like this person's idea and that person's idea. Um, there's this, you know, there's some good parts about being competitive. There's a way that it's helped us evolve forward, but then there's also ways that it has absolutely held us back because we don't stick together. We split and we go off in this direction because we think we've got it figured out better. And we find ourselves winding up into the same problems over and over and over again. Um, but if we start with ourselves and we work on our relationships that are right around us, then we can, it ripples outward. For sure. And this is a lot of what you work with, with your current business of sustainable wellness is not just the wellness and the nutrition from our food, but other ways to maintain mental and physical wellness in a holistic way, you know, which is hard right now with what this year has brought upon everybody. It's a hard time. It's like COVID has pierced the veil. So if there was something that was hard before, it just has been amplified. And the thing about right now is that you could be going through the worst time in your life and chances are the person next to you also is. There, there isn't like, you might feel alone with how, with feeling bad, but nobody, you're not, everybody's going through something hard right now. Um, so don't shy away from it. Don't, I guess that's what I'm trying to say is don't turn away from that. Um, I think there's something really valuable about sharing with another person and having them share back with you. It takes the isolation piece out of it really, really well. And it's simple and it's affordable. And it's something in, that in my practice, I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure out because it's something I've been doing for years. And it's something that I'm trying to figure out how to facilitate because I see the need um, for that to happen now. I, I, I work with a lot of moms who really, really just need to be listened to because of how hard things are on moms right now. 
They are. They are just so hard on, think, this situation has been so hard on mothers. This is so hard on lots of people. Um, and people really just need the spaces to be heard and seen and listened to and validated. And then if you get a chance to listen to somebody else back, then you recognize that, oh, maybe I'm not so out of, out of whack for feeling that way and, and um, going through that. I mean, that's the whole thing with the nutrition piece of my business is that, you know, without your health, you can't be effective. You cannot, you know, you just don't have the physical resilience to show up and do these incredibly hard tasks that are being asked of us right now. Yeah. And can you share with us how you moved into the world of food systems and being a health coach and how you use nutrition to incorporate it into these bigger components of global work and global impact. I've been very interested my whole life in, in health. And I um, worked when I was a young adult, I worked for a functional medical doctor. And the, the, one of the foundational pieces of what I was exposed to at that time was nutrition. And I worked at a restaurant that she ran that was really designed around promoting health. So there wasn't a thing at the restaurant that was um, anything outside of promoting someone's health. So it was all food that was organized around helping people either deal with chronic health conditions or avoid chronic health conditions. Um, and she brought a lot of um, her, her medical friends in, physicians, um, naturopaths, um, nutritionists who could talk to us about the benefits of using nutrition to, to support your body. And it changed my life. You know, if you transition from just living life as food, like as a second thought, um, and you, you put it in priority and you, you put it kind of on the level of the importance of breathing, you know, I mean, something that's just fundamental to what we do, but if you put that importance on it and you really try to take your health into your own hands, I really found that like the information that she was giving me was like, wow, this is, this is life-changing information. I felt like, um, a lot of the things that she was exposing me to were beneficial to my health. But then if you really look at it, it was also beneficial to the environment. There were foods that were minimally processed, minimal, minimal or no packaging at all. And it kind of created this seed where I started exploring, um, you know, how do we get to these places we get to with food and how do we get this confused about something that's so vital to who we are in our existence um, and then I really started looking with a critical eye at the food industry and going, what the hell is going on with this? Um, people are being manipulated and lied to about, um, about food. And, um, and then I became a parent and I just really noticed how manipulated and lied to and, and how busy parents are um, and how easy it is, how vulnerable they are to being manipulated by the food industry. Um, and the number of the amount of packaging and the number of chemicals involved in that. And so I started looking into, well, wow, I mean, if people just understood, again, starting with yourself, if people just understood kind of how powerful it is to change this really significant part of your lifestyle, um, you're not only having a benefit to your health, but you're also really benefiting the environment. If we are educated about our food supply, you know, we can be incredibly powerful advocates in the climate change movement without really having to do much of anything. Because I think that when people look at climate change and they look at getting involved, they think, oh, I can't do that. I don't have the time. Um, but it doesn't really amount to more time on anything. It just amounts to lifestyle choices. 
you know, the plastic industry is like the second biggest branch of the oil industry. I mean, next to like gasoline, that's where it's at. And so if we look at our food supply system and the packaging involved, and we say, hey, I'm gonna just make these simple changes and I'm not gonna buy food in plastic because not only does that plastic leach into my into my food and then into my body, but it also gets into the ground or into the groundwater and is uh, polluting the environment by extraction. And so I guess, you know, it's just this really simple and basic and very accessible connection to like what I do to myself and what I put into my body also affects the environment around me. It's incredibly important, it's incredibly subtle, but it's, it's significant. I mean, here in Western Montana, we are surrounded. We are literally surrounded. You cannot throw a brick without hitting somebody who's somehow involved in the local food supply. Our needs are met here. We are so lucky. So I really, really just want to encourage people to get away from mass food production and plug into their local food supply. And we don't have any reason not to here in Montana. Even if, even if you're struggling economically, um, there's still ways to get around that. Uh, our, grocery, our grocery stores here in Missoula try really hard to provide local food, which I appreciate. And there's just, there's just so many avenues to get in and, 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 and engage with it. Yeah, no, it's very true. It's, it's very fortunate to have that and really seeing um, the need to increase the accessibility of those kinds of options. And if you could leave us with any final calls to action for folks to get involved in climate action, in food systems, how we can work together to move forward. I really like to try to think about climate change and healing climate in terms of the human body. You know, we can do damage to the human body and the human body repairs if we give it the right circumstances to do so. I am holding out hope that the climate is the same way, but everybody has to get involved. Everybody has to start caring. It doesn't matter if you are are poor, if you're working class, if you're middle class, if you're owning class, everybody has to care because no one, doesn't matter what your background is, is going to exist without an earth. So just any place you can get involved and say something or do something is huge. And I think that we have this idea that we have to do something grandiose and fireworks have to be going off in order for us to feel effective at, at, at something. But I think it's just a matter of talking and conversing and educating and listening and um, validating and, and trying to work together. Um, that's good. That's that. I mean, that's all it really is. Um, it's, there's nothing more magical than that. And, and organizations who are putting on big, big events, awesome, cool, keep, keep going, keep doing that. But people like, like me and you and other moms out there who are super busy and feel overwhelmed just getting through the day, you know, it's just, it's just a matter of the small things that add up to the huge things, and especially if we do them together. Thank you to Jessie Thomas for joining us today. You can find out more about her work and her business, Sustainable Wellness, which operates out of Missoula, Montana, at sustainablewellness.net. And follow her on Instagram at sustainablewellness. Thank you for listening. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Stories for Action and on Twitter at Stories Number 4 Action. Find out more about our work at storiesforaction.org, 
where our mission is to use the power of storytelling to share human connection and advance a thriving planet for all.